Contentment comes from believing that God controls everything. Contentment does not depend on circumstances. Contentment comes from the supernatural power of Christ who lives in us. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. students, if you would open your Bibles to Philippians 4, Philippians 4, we're finishing our series in Paul's letter to the Philippians today. We're going to be reviewing uh, verses 10 to 23, which interestingly enough is on the subject of contentment. I'm working on this uh, sermon series on Friday, looking at Black Friday advertising, which is, it ain't about contentment, Right? Just in case you were wondering, Black Friday is not about don't buy us. It's all about you should want more than what you have so you can be happy and joyful with our stuff. So contentment is one of these concepts that's it's elusive. It's hard to find and it's harder to hang on to. Sometimes we chase what we think will make us contented. And when we get it, we discover that what we wanted is now making us miserable. There is a story of two teardrops floating down the river of life. One teardrop says to the other, who are you? I'm the teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? I'm a teardrop from the girl that got him. (laughs) Sometimes what you think you want, you get. I think sometimes God smiles, right? So Paul is writing this letter to the Philippians. It's really a thank you letter. Paul had probably not seen the people from this church in probably 10 years. He's been in prison for four years, and before that he'd been planting churches in multiple cities around the Roman Empire. So his friends at the church at Philippi have heard that he's in need, that he's in prison, and they sent Epaphroditus, his friend, to Rome with a financial gift. Paul obviously hadn't been able to work in a number of years. So Paul's comments on contentment we're going to study today come toward the end of a thank you letter. It's a thank you letter for their gift. It's a thank you for their support. And let's pick up the narrative at chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes to the church at Philippi, but I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but you lacked opportunity. Here's the principle. Contentment comes from believing that God controls everything. Contentment comes from believing that God controls everything. Paul says, your gift has made me rejoice in the Lord. So Paul's dilemma is this. He wants to thank them for their financial gift, But at the same time, he wants to let them know that he's content with whatever level of care God has been providing for him up to this point, regardless of their gift. Paul knew knew that the source of their gift to him ultimately was God, and his joy is in the Lord, not ultimately in his circumstances. 
And when he says, at last you have now revived your concern for me, Paul is not saying the church didn't care for him. He knew that the church cared for him. Paul had a very good relationship with the church at Philippi. But in the last 10 years, they have not sent him any material gifts. We don't know why. Maybe they didn't know that he had a need. Maybe they had a financial crisis in the church. Probably they couldn't find somebody to make an 800-mile journey to carry the gift. You know, it's not like exactly you could do Apple Pay or Venmo and just transfer cash like we do instantly. Back in the day, if you had to transfer a financial gift 800 miles, somebody took it, put it in a bag, and walked with it 800 miles. So it was a pretty significant commitment to find somebody to do that. But Paul's saying, now I know that you've revived or demonstrated your compassion by sending me a gift. See, Paul had a very committed confidence that God was in control of all circumstances. And God controlled all circumstances for his good, whether or not he got this gift or any gift in the last 10 years, God was in charge of that. Now, we normally call this God's providence. Providence, interesting word. God's providence is his sovereign orchestration of all events in all of life to accomplish his purposes. Many, many times we think, well, I see God move in miracles. You know, when he does something out of the ordinary, he moves against the laws of nature, he raises the dead, walks on water, feeds the 5,000. Boy, that's when I really see God at work. Have you ever thought that it's much more miraculous that everything happens on schedule, routinely, every day, because of God's providence? I mean, think about it. The sun came up today, which means the earth rotated another 24 hours. When you put your foot out of bed today, when you got up, I presume you got up, you're here, your foot actually went down on the floor instead of up in the air, which means the law of gravity still works. Isn't that amazing, right? We have rain occasionally, we have seasons, we have food, we have the hydrologic cycle. We have all these things that normally happen that demonstrate God's providential care for us. You're breathing his air right now. And he provides you with that air. And we take it for granted until we can't breathe, right? His providence is present everywhere all the time for everyone. Most people are, God, are blind to God's providence in the same way that a fish is blind to water. It's all they know, right? So God's provision for his people, for you and I, is even more specific. He's given us his son to pay the penalty for our sins so we can live forever in heaven with him. And if you've been in the faith for any length of time, you probably take your salvation for granted. We probably take for granted that the Holy Spirit lives in us and gives us insight. And when you look at the world and you see the foolishness they pursue, you say, how is it that you can't see the truth? Well, you have the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, and they don't. And we once were blind like them. On earth, God orders everything for our good and his glory. On earth, God orders everything for our good and his glory. Verse 11. Not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content, you can underline this one, in Whatever circumstances I am. Here's the principle. 
Contentment comes by learning to be satisfied with less. Contentment comes by learning, learning to be satisfied with less. So Paul's learned to be content in very difficult circumstances. As a matter of fact, he's been in extraordinarily difficult circumstances. He's been flogged five times by the Jews, 39 lashes. He's been beaten three times with rods. He's been stoned with rocks by a mob and left for dead at Lystra. He's been shipwrecked three times, spent 24 hours in the deep. He's traveled around the Roman Empire bringing the gospel in constant danger from robbers, from thieves. He's been planting churches and caring for them. He's now in prison, been in prison for four years. He's an enemy of the state, and it's a very high probability he's going to be executed. And God's faithfulness during these hardships has been the learning school, the training school for Paul's lessons in contentment. Contentment is learned. It is not our natural state. In the original Greek, the word contentment means to be self-sufficient, to be satisfied, to have enough. And that is a word that our culture does not know. I have enough. It implies a certain independence from circumstances, a lack of need for help or assistance. Now, the Greek Stoic philosophers in Paul's age, they taught that the path to contentment was indifference. You just don't care about anything or anybody. You refuse to need them, and then you'll be content. You'll be independent. You won't be hurt by your circumstances because you don't care. If you can only kill caring, then you can be content. Now, Paul was the opposite of that. Paul deeply cared. Paul was deeply committed. He was deeply invested in other people, and yet he was contented regardless of circumstances because he was confident that God would provide for him. Now, we live in a complaining culture, not a contented culture, right? We have high and growing consumer debt. Consumer debt is proof positive that we are dissatisfied with our current state of material possessions. Because we're spending more than we earn to acquire things that we're convinced we need that we currently don't have. We experience quite high divorce rates, which is a symptom of discontentment in our marriages. Many, many people play the lottery because they believe that a lot of money will allow them to buy things that will satisfy their souls, bring them happiness, and impress people they don't even like. Our culture is experiencing more and more lawsuits over wrongs that have been perpetrated on us, and we are victims, and we need to right that. And I'm not saying there's, that's never right, but I'm saying the increase in that is indicated that we're increasingly dissatisfied with our current status in life. We change jobs, residences, automobiles, electronic devices, friends, spouses, at an increasing rate. See, whatever we currently have is viewed as inferior to what we do not have. And of course, people who want us to buy what they are selling us always want us to be in a state of discontentment. So we'll buy their stuff. Yes? Madison Avenue spends billions of dollars on advertising. As a matter of fact, that is Facebook's business, selling your eyeballs to advertisers. And that is Google's business as well. 
If it's free, you're the product. Someone asked billionaire J. Paul Getty, how much money would be enough? You know what he said? Just a little bit more. Just a little bit more. There's no contentment unless you can say, I have enough. The story is told of a Quaker who watched his new neighbor move in next door. After all kinds of modern appliances, electronic gadgets, plush furniture, and expensive wall hangings were moved into the house, the Quaker called out to his neighbor, if you find you're lacking anything, neighbor, let me know, and I'll show you how to live without it. <laughs> Epictetus once wrote, wealth consists not in having great possessions, but in having few wants. Paul wrote in verse 12, I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Here's the principle. Contentment does not depend on circumstances. It comes from the supernatural power of Christ who lives in us. Contentment does not come from circumstances. It comes from the supernatural power of Christ who lives in us. Paul says, I can get along with humble means. Now, humble, he's talking about hungry, lack, not enough, shortages, no surplus. It says he was content with basic food, clothing, and shelter. Back in the day, about 90 years ago, we experienced something in this country called the Great Depression. And in the 30s, there was a very, very common saying that said, use it up, wear it out, make it do, do without. Use it up, wear it out, make it do, do without. I haven't heard that phrase in a long time. Most people today do not use up what they buy, and they certainly don't wear it out. We buy lots of stuff, we use it for a little while, and then we throw it away into the landfill, right? Very few people in our developed world today have any idea what Paul meant by humble means. In the ancient world and in parts of the developing world today, simply getting a decent meal means it's a great day. On average, it takes a minimum of 1,800 to 2,200 calories per day to survive, depending on your activity level. In 1961, the average American consumed about 2,880 calories per day. 1961. And 60 years ago, people were much more physically active than they are today. Today, Americans consume about 3,600 calories today, and we are far less active. We are leisurely committing suicide with our forks and our electronic screens. In sub-Sahara Africa today, the average person consumes about 2,100 calories a day. Our calorie consumption mirrors our consumption in general. Oh, by the way, we throw away 38% of our food. 38%. We produce plenty, but we waste 38%. Our calorie consumption mirrors our consumption in general. 
This is fascinating. According to a recent survey, the average American woman has 103 items in her closet. Of these, she regularly wears 10% of those items. She considers 21% to be unwearable. Either too tight or too loose. And she has never worn 12% of what is in her closet. A recent survey of British men reveals that they generally only wear 13% of the clothes in their closet. Apparently, 87% is reserved for the moth. Average woman spends about $1,700 a year on clothes. Average man spends a little over 1000 a year on clothes, mostly with the help of a wife or a girlfriend. You think we dress bad now, gentlemen? Think what you'd do without help. In Paul's day, if you had more than one change of clothes, you were considered rich. Most people wore the same outfit until it literally fell apart. Paul wrote this section on contentment when he was in prison as an enemy of the state. He had lost his freedom four years earlier, and yet he is content, and his lack was beyond our understanding. In his letter to Timothy, Paul gives us an eternal perspective on stuff. 1 Timothy 1.6. But godliness actually is a means of great gain when accompanied by contentment. For we have brought nothing into this world, so we cannot take anything out of it either. And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be content. Benjamin Franklin once said, Contentment makes poor men rich. Discontentment makes rich men poor. We came here with nothing, and we will leave here with nothing. The purpose of our life is not to acquire more stuff that your heirs will throw into the landfill. Your treasures will be trashed by your children. Your treasures will be trashed by your children before you're cold. They won't even open the boxes. We do need food and clothing, by the way. I'm not arguing that. But the main purpose of life is not to acquire more stuff. It's to grow more like Jesus. Godliness is great gain because it lasts, it pays dividends, it bears fruit for all eternity. Now, by the way, contentment does not mean complacency. Contentment doesn't mean resignation to your circumstances. There's nothing wrong with trying to change your circumstances while you're following the leading of the Lord. By the way, there's nothing wrong with trying to change your jobs and improve your situation. There's nothing wrong with that. If you have cancer, trust the Lord and get the best medical care you possibly can. If you're married to an unbeliever, do your best to love them to Jesus. However, if your circumstances cannot be changed, submit yourself to God who works all things together for our good and His glory. St. Francis of Assisi once prayed, Good prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. I see loads and loads and loads of people tilting at windmills, like Don Quixote, trying to change stuff that simply is not going to be changed. I see also a great number of people not changing the things that could be changed for whatever reason. Paul says, I know how to live in prosperity. 
it's often more difficult to be content with prosperity than poverty. When you're poor, it's easy to take your eyes off Jesus and worry. That's when we need to trust the Lord. In times of prosperity, it's easy to forget that we need the Lord and we're tempted to trust our stuff, our possessions, our investment accounts. That's when we need to thank God for His provision. The truth is, more stuff will never satisfy your soul. More stuff's not going to satisfy your soul. It's ironic and tragic that many people at the pinnacle of fame and acquisition fall into despair and depression simply because it's never designed to satisfy your soul. Only Jesus can do that. 1 Timothy 6.17, Paul writes, Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So Paul is saying, I want you to think about the things of this world from an eternal perspective. We're to remember that God is sovereign and he's the source of everything was possessed in this life. Our hope must be in the Lord, not in earthly treasures. Have you ever noticed the thing that earthly treasure just flies away with wings? Solomon talked about that. We think it's very stable. It's not really stable at all. When God entrusts us with material possessions, he wants us to use them to do good. He wants us to use them to bless others. He wants us to be generous and share as a testimony of his grace. That way we store up treasures in heaven where they're secure, not down here. By the way, there's nothing inherently wrong with prosperity. Prosperity or abundance or surplus and overflow, it's more than we need. That's a gift from God. God simply says, use it with an eternal point of view in mind. It's not all about trusting it for your security. Your security is the source of the gift, not the gift. See, the problem is not abundance. It's our attitude toward abundance that causes us the problem. 1 Timothy 6, 9. But those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many a pang. But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. See, wanting to get rich ultimately is coveting. And coveting always leads us away from the Lord. Coveting is the opposite of contentment. Coveting is desiring what God has already chosen to give to somebody else. Coveting is never satisfied no matter how much it gets. Coveting is idolatry because it values things more than God himself. Coveting believes that God is not a good God because he doesn't give me what I want. Satan is a master at creating discontentment and coveting. And the very first example is in the garden, right? God says, you can have the entire garden, Adam and Eve, only one tree you can't have. Satan comes along and says, 
God is not a good God because he wouldn't give you that one tree even though you can have everything else. And by the way, what you really should want is to be like God. So they said, well, God's not a good God. And so they decided to follow Satan. And we are here as a result of that. Contentment ultimately is being satisfied with God himself and whatever he chooses to provide because he knows what's best. Contentment is always God-centered. Discontentment or coveting is always self-centered. Paul says, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry. Now this word learn is an interesting word. It means literally being initiated into like a secret society. They had a lot of mystery religions in that era. And there was the secret initiation rituals that they would bring a new noviate into this religious order and they would share with this person the secrets, the hidden mysteries of that society. And Paul says, you must learn the secret of contentment in every circumstance. And the secret is trusting completely in Christ's care love, and provision for us. And he summarizes that, verse 13, in an extraordinarily powerful statement, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, some translations read, I am strong for all things in Christ who continually infuses strength into me. I can do all things through Christ who keeps on pouring power into me. See, all things is often taken out of context. It doesn't mean that you can move the Brooklyn Bridge from New York to San Francisco with your bare hands, okay? It means that Christ pours his supernatural power into us to enable us to do everything he's called us to do, not some of the stupid stuff that we decide to do. And we want God to give us supernatural power to do foolishness. God will never give you supernatural power to do foolishness. He gives you supernatural power to enable you to fulfill his plan and his purpose for your life. And to be content doing it. Had a little conversation with God about 35 years ago. I was a music major and there was this young man who, I sang a choir with him, and I was taking singing lessons which didn't help a lot. This guy never took a voice lesson in his life, and he sounded like an angel. And I said, God, I, I, I love music. How can you to give me a voice like him? Covetousness. And it took me a while to figure out, I didn't call you to be a worship leader, and that's what I called him to do, to be a worship leader at a local church. That's his ministry. That's what I called him to do. I gave him the supernatural power to do that. I didn't call you to do that. Why are you discontented with what I've called you to do? (gasps) (laughs) Started to get warm in that room, I'm telling you. See, Paul's secret is that he had learned to draw on the power of the indwelling Christ in any circumstance to accomplish God's purpose for his life in that circumstance, even if that meant prison. And even in your case, if it means cancer, and even in your case, if it means unemployment, and even in your case, it means you're on the outs with your kids or your grandkids, whatever, you have supernatural power to accomplish what God wants you to accomplish 
in the circumstances he has put you in right now. Dr. Jack Arnold says that most Christians are I can't Christians. I can't get along with my spouse. I can't control my temper. I can't break this or that bad habit. That's garbage. We are called to be I can Christians because there is nothing God calls us to do that God's power will not enable us to do. For the Christian, I can't usually means I won't. Jeremiah 32, 27. God is speaking. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is anything too difficult for me? Now what I want you to do I want you to list some of your circumstances, because I know you have them, and the holidays are a really good time for depression over circumstances, because we're all supposed to be happy, happy, happy. Are you kidding me? How the world celebrates Christmas would exhaust Atlas. I mean, it's an exhausting period of time if you do it their way. In every one of your circumstances, you need to memorize this verse and put it on top. Is anything too difficult for God? There is no circumstance, no relationship, no problem, no trial, no mess, no heartbreak, no regret in your life that God's power cannot solve. And I want you to notice that there are two parts to this promise. There's your part and there's God's part. I can do all things is our part. Through Christ who strengthens me, that's God's part. See, we must step out in faith and act, but we must first pray to make sure that we're doing what he's calling us to do and not doing what we want to do. And we can only do what he wants us to do as we depend on his power. The literal translation is not through his power. It's I can do all things in him who strengthens me. Right? Jesus gave us an example of this. Memory was talking to the disciples, he gave them a, a literal live example in John 15 about the vine and the branches, a grapevine and the branches. And he says, apart from me, you can do nothing. So the picture is you have this grapevine and you have all the branches coming off the grapevine. And life-giving energy flows from the vine through the branches and produces fruit. But if the life-giving connection with the branch is broken, it's cut off or whatever it happens to be, Jesus said the the branch dries up, it's thrown away, and it can't produce any fruit. Well, the picture is pretty clear. Our job, he says, abide in me, remain in me. Maintain an intimate, life-giving connection with Jesus every day, and you will have his supernatural power to accomplish whatever he calls you to do. Our job is to make sure that we are maintaining that life-giving connection. Now, we always make time for what's important. If your relationship with Jesus is important, you will make time for Jesus every day. If it's not, you won't. But then you will not be able to say, I can do all things through him who strengthens me because you're trying to do it in your own strength. Don't do that. I've spent a good deal of my life trying it. I have gray hair trying to do that. It is a really, really, really hard way to live. Depend on him to show you what to do and then depend on him for the power to accomplish it. Now Paul tells the Philippians next that even though Christ meets his needs, they did well to share with him 
in his troubles, verse 14. I need a little coffee for this one. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. That word affliction literally means pressure. Verse 15, and you yourselves also know, Philippians, that the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have an abundance. I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Here's the principle. Contentment comes as we give generously to God's work and experience his blessings. Contentment comes as we give generously to God's work and experience his blessings. Now, Paul wants to say thank you to his friends for the gift, even though he's just told them that God will supply his needs whether you give it or not. But he does want to say thank you. The truth is that God often uses other people to, to meet our needs. And he certainly used the Philippians to help Paul. Paul says, you've done a noble thing. You've done a beautiful thing sharing in my affliction. By the way, the Philippian church was desperately poor. 2 Corinthians 8 says they gave liberally out of their deep poverty. Now that's deep poverty, first century version. One pair of clothes. We don't know what deep poverty is. None of us know what deep poverty is. Paul apparently kept a very careful record of the gifts that anybody gave him. This matter of giving and receiving, that's a business term. That's a banking term. And it refers to accounting. Paul was a very, very diligent and accountable steward for what he had received. But his heartbeat was this. He says, not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit that accrues to your account. He wasn't motivated by the material gift that he was given. He was motivated by the spiritual profit that they would get and God would credit to their account as a result of their faithful, generous stewardship. Paul didn't want to be materially rich himself. He wanted them to be spiritually rich. Paul says, look, I'm filled up completely. God is pleased with your gift, and you're really giving to God. You're really not giving to me. And that's true for us today. When you give your offering, you're ultimately not giving to the church. You're ultimately giving to God. It's his church, right? He's the bride. He bought it with his blood. And God is pleased by heartfelt giving because it's an act of worship. See, when you give money or time or talents or whatever it is, you are saying, I value God more than what I'm giving. If you value your gift more than God, then you'll keep the gift. You won't give because you'd rather have the money than God. When you give, you're saying, I value God more than I value the money that I'm giving. That's why we call it a sacrifice, right? Which is the heartbeat of the whole thing. And God honors cheerful giving and more than repays it. The God of Bible is an utterly generous God. Jesus commanded this, by the way. He says, store up treasures for yourselves. Where? In heaven, Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust corrupt, destroy, 
and thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, verse 21, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. See, God wants you to be rich. But God's definition of rich goes infinitely beyond what this world can materially provide. Jesus is only talking about eternal spiritual treasure, about God rewarding people in heaven forever for their faithfulness here on earth. See, God wants your treasures to be secure. And heaven's really the only secure location for your treasure. You know why? This universe has an expiration date. Guess what? Your expiration date's probably going to come before the universe's expiration date. So if you want your treasures to be secure, you better put them in a secure location. God knows that we are almost irresistibly attracted to the bright, shiny objects of this life. In the same way that a bug is attracted to a blue light zapper, right? Same thing. By the way, that's a pretty good word picture. The bug can't say no to the blue light. We almost have a hard time saying no to stuff. Jesus said, you cannot serve God and money. You will only have one master. And your heart will always pursue what? What you treasure most, what you value most. So here's the best way to protect your heart from slavery to money. You don't want to be a slave to money? Here's what you do. You send it on ahead of you to heaven where it's safe and where it's secure because your heart, your loyalty will always follow your pocketbook. And what you're trying to protect isn't your money, it's your heart. I have talked to people who are really hacked off about dying because all their treasures here. Everything they value is on earth. They have nothing in heaven. And so they're going someplace where they're going to be broke. Literally. Because they have nothing there. Everything is here. And they're bitter about that. One of the ways you look forward to heaven is because if your treasure's there, you look forward to being united with your treasure in heaven. What's the greatest treasure? Relationship with God himself through Jesus Christ. That's treasure beyond compare. Almost everything in life, even here, that's eternally valuable is relationships. Relationships. Mary and I went to the cemetery the other day, just to remind ourselves, Caleb died a few years ago. When you walk through and you look at gravestones, what do they say? Beloved father, mother, grandmother, grandfather, brother, sister, aunt, uncle. It's all about relationships. It ain't about stuff. They had a closet full of stuff. That didn't show up on the gravestone. That should tell us what priorities are, right? So send it on ahead because it'll protect your heart from lusting after the stuff of here because you have treasure in heaven and your loyalty and priorities will be in heaven as well. And God promises to repay you for generous giving today. Proverbs eleven twenty four. There is one who scatters yet increases all the more. And there is one who withholds what is justly due and it results only in want. It's a picture of a farmer. Every springtime, 
A farmer scatters all the seed corn or seed wheat or whatever it happened to be they saved from the last harvest, and they literally take all their remaining wealth. That seed corn is their life. You never ate the seed corn. If you ate the seed corn, you wouldn't have anything to grow a crop with next year. So you always had the seed corn, and they throw it on the ground and pray to God for rain to grow a crop for next year. And the principle is very simple. Generous giving leads to abundance. Stinginess leads to poverty. Luke 6, 38. Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, men will pour into your lap. Here's the principle. For by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you in return. I've had people say, well, when I give to the Lord, should I give on the gross or the net? And I say, well, do you want to be blessed on the gross or the net? <laughs> Jesus didn't shed some of his blood for you. He poured it all out. All of it. You will be given to in the same degree that you give. 2 Corinthians 9 says, If you sow sparingly, you'll reap sparingly. If you sow bountifully, you'll reap bountifully. If you want a bumper crop, what do you do? Plant a lot of seeds. Spiritually, the same principle holds true. When you give to the Lord because you love Him and want to help His people, He will enrich your life in every area, both in this life and in the life to come. And it has nothing to do with size of the gift. Jesus said, the widow gave more than everyone and she gave less than a penny because it was all she had. God's blessings go far beyond material wealth. If you think doing business with God means you, you give to the Lord's work money and he's going to bless you with monetary wealth, you are cheating yourself out of wealth beyond comprehension. Verse 19, my God shall supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Here's the principle. Contentment comes from believing that our Heavenly Father, who knows us and loves us, will give us whatever He knows we need. Contentment comes from believing that our Heavenly Father, who knows us and loves us, will give us whatever He knows we need. Now, this is a promise of provision that is almost incomprehensible. God promises to meet our needs, not our greeds. See, greed can never be satisfied. Greed is never content. Greed does not know the word enough. And greed or covetousness always leads us away from God. God's supply is how big? Infinite, right? God's reservoir is infinite. And it doesn't say he supplies us out of his riches. It says he supplies us according to his riches. If you ask a millionaire to give you something out of their riches... They may give you a few dollars. If they give you according to their riches, commensurate with their riches, consistent with the amount they have, you might get $100,000. God gives us according to his riches. And the measure of God's riches is infinite. And they're revealed in the glory of Jesus Christ and his eternal kingdom, which God's promised to those who love him. See, God's promised us ultimately a relationship with him that lasts forever in heaven. And many people don't know much about heaven, and so they devalue that. And they think this place is all there is. 
That is ignorance on steroids. When you get to heaven and you look back at this place, you will be amazed at how tiny it really is. How small. You really want a good picture of that, read C.S. Lewis's The Great Divorce. Fabulous picture of heaven. Our infinite personal God who created everything and cares about sparrows will provide beyond our wildest imagination. Ephesians 3.20 Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we can ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be the glory, etc. So if God's capacity is infinite, why are we worried? Why are we concerned? Why are we critical? We should be content. One thing that should give us great comfort is that our Heavenly Father knows when to tell us no. He knows when we're asking for things that will not be good for us. God's love is shown in his no's as well as his yeses. See, we often don't even know what we need. If you've ever been around a two-year-old, they're pretty convinced they know what they want, right? Your job as a parent or a grandparent is to give them what they need, not what they want. See, Whatever God provides for you at any point in time is what you need at that point in time. Let me say that again. Whatever God provides for you at any point in time is exactly what you need at that point in time. And I can hear some of you going, you have no bloody idea what I'm dealing with, stupid. I don't need to know. He does. And he knows what you need right now. Now, because he's God, and he's your father, and he loves you beyond your comprehension. You want to know the core of commitment? Psalm 23 says what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is nothing that the sheep need that the good shepherd will not provide. There's nothing you need that God has not already provided and will provide and is giving you today, right now, what you need. We should be contented with our external circumstances since God's the one who provides them. It's not okay to be complacent in your relationship with Jesus. Some people say, well, I'm saved. That's all I care about. I got my fire insurance. Now I'm going to live my life the way I want to live. That's like saying to your spouse, I told you I loved you when we got married. And if I've ever changed my mind, I'll let you know. <laughs> now that's a recipe for a dying relationship. That's called murder by neglect, right? Intimate relationships, including your relationship with Jesus Christ, need time. They need attention every day. Jesus is far more interested in hearing from us than we are in talking with him. That's a little embarrassing, but it's very true. We should have a godly ambition to grow more like Jesus. It's commanded in Scripture. It's commended in Scripture. It's invited in Scripture. See, be content with what you have, absolutely. Never be content with who you are. 
Never be content with your current level of spiritual maturity and say, I'm as mature as I need to be. The Lord would say, not. He wants you to keep growing in love with Him and intimacy with Him and more like Jesus until the day He takes you home. We are commanded to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, 1 Peter. There's an old song that kind of says it. George Beverly Shea wrote it. He said, I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. Turn your eyes on Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Let's review, and then Tom will come and we'll do prayer and praise. Principle one, contentment comes from believing that God controls everything. And I know I hear some of you say, yeah, I believe that, but does he control everything in my life? Yes, he controls everything in your life. Number two, and this is where it gets down to muscle and bone, contentment comes by learning to be satisfied with less. I've got some notions for you. Spend less time on screens. Spend less time listening to advertising, for heaven's sakes. Why would you want your soul to be discontented all the time? Because when you buy that stuff, you know what happens? You're thrilled with it for about 15 minutes. And then it just goes in the closet or in the cupboard or whatever, and you open 10 years later and go, what's that? What's that junk? What did I, I bought this stuff, right? Your happiness is inversely proportional to the things you need. Number three. Contentment does not depend on circumstances. Contentment comes from the supernatural power of Christ who lives in us. Number four, contentment comes as we generously give to God's work and experience his blessings. God is eager to bless us, not just materially, but far more importantly, spiritually. And number four, five, contentment comes from believing that our Heavenly Father who knows us and loves us will give us whatever he knows we need. And that's relationship with Jesus Christ. He knows if you need money. He knows if you need a job. He knows if you need healing. He knows if you need reconciliation. He knows what we need. We just have to be willing to say, Lord, I want what you want, and I'm willing to do whatever you want me to do in order to accomplish that purpose, and I'm depending on you for the power to get it done. Thank you much for listening. I love you all. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.